<clears throat> we're back with Paul. We're continuing our series on Paul, and we're talking about what it means to be a 21st century Christian, having experienced the example of Paul in the first century, and what it means to grow in Christ in the way that Paul did. And once again, we're finding the same theme. That's why we titled this Hero or Heretic. We're, we're finding the same theme of Paul uh, spreading the message of God and having an incredible success and having people come to know God for the first time in their lives in this special way and also finding himself in controversy and in trouble and, and finding others who don't necessarily agree with him uh, as well as he might have liked. Now, we think about scary words for Christians. What are some phrases or words that are scary for Christians, right? Sin's one. Uh, hell, might be, hell might be another one. Um, Sorry, there's no seating available. The other church down the street got up five minutes early. That's a scary one. Um, you know, there's a lot of things for Christians that are scary that we don't like to hear, that, that, that bother us. And probably one of the scariest words for a Christian, really genuinely honest with ourselves, is probably the E word, evangelism. Right? The idea that we are called by God to express our faith and to let others know what it means to love and to know God. This is scary for a lot of people and for a lot of Christians. It's a scary idea that faith isn't meant to be lived quietly and alone and by itself, but is meant to be shared and expressed, and that, and that we're meant to live in a way. Part of evangelism is living a way uh, that Christ would be proud of and living in a way that Christ calls us. And, uh, and that's what Paul's doing this morning. Now, Paul's been doing it all of these several weeks. Paul's been doing this his whole, his whole ministry, right? Paul's been evangelizing. But up to this point, most of his evangelism, at least as it's been recorded in Scripture, has been preaching and has been and has been a kind of analogous to Billy Graham's crusades when he would go and, and he would preach to large crowds, but then he would send out uh, individuals who were uh, trained by his organization to go out and kind of communicate uh, with them individually. And, and in the same way, Paul's evangelizing to large groups and in grandiose ways. Today we find something different. Paul is meeting with Silas. They're in the, they're in the city, city of Philippi. And many historians consider this to be Paul's first time setting foot in Europe. So Philippi is kind of on the extreme eastern edge of Europe. It's still Greece, um, but it's, it's, it's modern-day Europe. Okay, So this is the first time Paul sets foot this far west of uh, where he started out. And uh, during, his, during his ministry, anyway. This is the first time he sets foot there during his ministry. And so Paul is in Philippi, and, uh, <coughs> excuse me, and he, uh, he's ministering to these folks, and the Sabbath day comes, and he finds a place to pray. He goes outside the city gates, and he finds a river. And he just finds a place where he and Silas to pray, to connect with God, to grow, to become closer. And they meet a woman named Lydia. Lydia's there with several other women. The other women aren't named for whatever reason, but Lydia uh, talks to Paul. Lydia sees something in Paul. Lydia sees that Paul experiences God in a very special way. And Lydia really, frankly, kind of asks Paul, what is it going to take for me to have what you have? Paul was evangelizing by being an example of faith. Paul was living out his faith. Someone saw that faith and said, I want to be a part of what you're a part of. So Paul talks to Lydia, and, and, her, and he converts her, and he baptizes her, and he, and he prays with her, and, and she comes to know God in a very special way. Now, Lydia was kind of an important person. The Bible tells us that she was a dealer in purple cloth, and that might sound like the most ridiculous, and overly specific job description in the world, uh, but to understand the context of the first century, this was very important stuff. Um, in the first century, you know, clothes were, were dyed and colored by, you know, things, by stuff, not dyed. Uh, you know, blue was, was from blue-colored fruits and so forth. Um, but it was difficult to get a very royal shade of royal blue or purple. Uh, there were only a couple ways to do it. One of those ways was a particular species of shellfish that was actually crushed up to create a purple dye. And that shellfish is actually extinct now. Uh, it, went, it went extinct not long after Paul, believe it or not. 
It didn't last for very long. But this purple color was rare. There's a reason the animal went extinct, because it uh, lived for such a short... It, it was such a small population. The color was called tequila in Hebrew. I'm not sure what the word is in Greek. But this color is very, very special. It's, it's used only by those wealthy enough to afford it, and that's not very many. Purple cloth. Uh, if you want to put it in modern context, I remember in, in high school we watched a modern interpretation of Romeo and Juliet, and I thought it was so cool. I mean, it was the same words. They didn't change one word from the script, but they changed all the settings to be like 1980s Chicago or something. And so it was really funny because if you've, if you've never seen it, I mean, you know, they're running around saying these, you know, ancient English words in these same scripts, but they're a different setting. So if we were going to do the same thing, if we were going to take this and superimpose it in the 21st century, she might have been like a Rolex dealer. Or, you know, an exotic car. You know, there's these concierges whose job is to buy exotic cars for the rich customers who can't even bother to go to the dealer themselves. You know, I mean, this is what she does. She she produces and procures stuff for rich people. And uh, and Paul sees her, and and she begins to wonder what this God might be about. Right? She's probably doing okay for herself if she's dealing in very expensive stuff. And she's probably around people who are doing okay for themselves. But she sees something in Paul that she wants more than that purple cloth and the money and the riches and the kings and the, and the kings and rulers than she was selling cloth to, she saw something really incredible. Really incredible. And, uh, and so, she, <clears throat> so she comes to know God for the first time in her life. Then Paul continues. He goes back into the city where he meets another woman. Now, he's having problems with these women, right? The first one went okay. The next one, not so good. This woman has a spirit inside her, the Bible says, that allows her to, to tell the future. Uh, more than likely, what she had was uh, the ability to manip- manipulate people, right? She didn't have supernatural powers from God, but she did have the ability to manip- manipulate people, to make them believe that what she was saying was true. And so she manipulates people, and they pay her to do this, and uh, the same stuff happens today, right? There are psychics on television and otherwise that ask the right questions and twist the words right and can convince you they can speak to your dead loved ones by asking the right questions. I uh, these quizzes on Facebook are all over the place, and people are amazed that they're always just so right. You answer these questions, and then it tells you something about yourself. That's how it works. People are like, wow, that's spot on, because it says I'm funny and attractive and intelligent. You know? Well, of course I am, you know. <clears throat> is it really magic, or is it maybe just saying what you want to hear? And that's what this fortune teller is doing. Is she's telling people what they want to hear. It makes them feel good, and they pay her for it, and then she, in turn, pays her owners and her masters. And, uh, and so she does this, and Paul comes up to her. And, and we don't really see that there's much of an exchange between her and Paul, except that she's mocking Paul. It's easy to miss this. It's easy to look at that and read and, and wonder why Paul was annoyed that she was saying, this is the Son of the Most High God, this is, the, this is a servant of God, a slave of God, this guy is proclaiming the way to salvation. That sounds good, right? But you've got to understand the tone of voice that's happening here. She was being sarcastic. She was mocking him. Oh, here goes Jesus' little buddy. Everyone look out. It's Jesus' buddy. Uh, you better watch out. He's going to save you all. How to, how to go away from your wretched ways, right? She was mocking him. She was teasing him. She was making fun of him. Every time she saw him, she'd see him out in town. She'd see him at the marketplace. She'd see him walking down the road. She'd point him out and make fun of him. She couldn't stand Paul. I don't know if it was that this, this evil inside her was uncomfortable being around Paul, or maybe she was just annoyed that someone else was offering something that made people feel good and wasn't charging for it. Uh, but for whatever reason, she hated Paul. She couldn't stand this guy. And she mocked him and teased him and, and harassed him. Finally, after several days, which is evidence that Paul is significantly more patient than I am, after several days, he cast the spirit out of her. Right? He took away her meal ticket, or at least her, her master's meal ticket. I don't know how much this bothered her, um, because she wasn't getting the money for it anyway. 
But it definitely bothered uh, these slaveholders. It definitely bothered the people who owned her and had a right to the money that she made. And, uh, and so they come up to Paul and Silas and they drag them out and they grab them and they pull them and they yank them and they beat them in the middle of the city, right? In the first century, we talked about this a few weeks ago. In the first century, corporations didn't exist. Grocery stores didn't happen. Uh, there were no public utilities. Uh, you had the government and you had small businesses. That's what you had. So if it didn't come from the government, it came from a small business. And small businesses were usually a husband and a wife or just one person, um, or maybe even a family, who would come together and provide some sort of a good or service and trade it for other goods or services or maybe money. In Rome, they had a pretty strong currency, so they usually traded for money. And, uh, and so what was happening here is the city square is just the city square, right? This is the marketplace. This is where a baker sells bread and then goes and buys some meat and brings the meat home with them. And... And this is also where all the political leaders are, the magistrates, the folks who Rome had sent out to be in charge of this occupied land. And so Rome sends these magistrates out through there, and, and these men, these slaveholders, grab Paul and Silas, they drag them to the magistrates, they say, look, these Jews are subverting the crown. These guys are subverting Caesar. These guys are suggesting that we do things that are illegal. Subversion, that's the crime. That's the, that's the accusation, that they're encouraging or inciting uh, criminal behavior. That's illegal in the United States. That's illegal today, right? You can't, you can't, I mean, you can, you can, free speech kind of goes a little bit, but you can't really tell people specifically to go break the law, right? You can't do that. Um, You know, you can tell people how to break the law. That's protected speech. You can talk about breaking the law. That's protected speech, but you can't tell them specifically to break the law, right? That's, that's where protected speech ends and and the law uh, begins. And, and Rome was the same way, right? It's kind of, it was kind of hairy territory, uh, because Rome did understand a, a certain level of free speech. Nowhere near what we had today, but a certain level of free speech as long as your speech wasn't against the government. You could harass each other, you could make fun of religion, but you could not say something against the government. So they grabbed Paul and they said, look, forget about the religion stuff. This guy is subverting. This guy is suggesting that we stop following Caesar like we know we should. That's not quite what Paul was saying, but it was close enough and that was good enough for them. And so they drag him in, they beat him, they, they strip him of his clothes, they beat him with rods and sticks and rocks, and, and they take him to the jailer and they say, find us the most secure cell you've got. So he takes him into an interior cell, shackles him by his hands and his feet, and, lo- and closes the door behind them. Things aren't looking so good for Paul. You know, sometimes we get these images or these paintings of, of, uh, of martyrs in these situations, and they look so peaceful and happy, and I don't think that's true. Uh, Paul may know that God and may have the faith, and I'm confident had the faith to know that God would see him through this one way or another. Although, uh, spoiler alert, we know that Paul would eventually lose his life for his ministry. Uh, but Paul, uh, in this jail cell, is certainly not happy. He's broken. His body hurts. He aches. He's in pain. He can't speak. He's, he's not been given his, the right to a trial. He can't even say his side of the story. He's been beaten and thrown into a cell and locked up. I can't imagine how that feels. But that's where Paul is. But where do we find Paul? We find Paul in the jail cell at the exact same place he was at the river of free man. We find him praying and praising God. The prisoners are listening, right? The prisoners are listening to what Paul is doing. They're amazed at this concept that in the midst of all this pain and anguish, in the midst of feeling every bit as destitute as they were, Paul was praying to God, thanking and praising God, right? Paul wasn't pleading to God. That's not what it says. Paul was praising God. Thank you, God. Imagine how foreign that must have sounded. Thank you, God, in the midst of what's happening in my life right now. They're impacted by God, and then suddenly God impacts them. An earthquake happens. I mean, this is such a dramatic story. It's so cool. An earthquake hits. 
The foundation of the jail is damaged, the doors spring open, and the shackles are loosened. Now the jailer, he wakes up, he sees this, and he grabs his sword. And to understand this, um, crucifixion was not exclusive to Jesus or the thieves on the cross. In fact, it happened hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Rome loved to crucify people. And that's exactly where that jailer was headed uh, if uh, if these guys were to get away. If the jailer would have, would have uh, been fallen asleep and the, and the inmates would have escaped, uh, almost certainly Rome would have had, a, had him crucified, probably right there in Philippi at the city gates uh, for everyone to see. So he grabs a sword to kill himself because he'd much rather die at his own hand than suffer on a cross, as Jesus did. And so, <clears throat> so Rome, Rome has these punishments. And this, Wait a second. We're still here. Nobody's left. What's happened here is that this jailer didn't give Paul the time of day. Paul certainly would have pleaded with him and told him that he was a Roman citizen and this was wrong. And even so, the jailer ignored him. The jailer threw him in an interior cell because someone told him to. The jailer probably participated in beating him. The jailer gave him no grace, no mercy, and had every opportunity now to have everything he had come to him come to him. Paul says, wait, we're still here. We're extending to you grace and love and we're extending to you an opportunity to stay alive and to stay well and to stay healthy, we are giving you something you didn't give us. And we're doing it because we love God. He was impacted and impressed. He brings him home. Can you imagine this for a second? This is, this is the way my brain works when I read these scriptures, right? You think it should be all you know, theological implications, but how about this one? Uh, your jailer husband you know, shows up at 2 in the morning and says, hey, check out this guy from the jail I just brought home. Right? He's going to tell us about God. Right? So, but he brings him home. And he dresses his wound. He provides him a meal. And the jailer and his entire household come to know God, come to have faith in Christ, and come to be baptized. This is an incredible story of evangelism. Once again, Paul's evangelism has shifted from fiery speeches and sermons to just being present and just being faithful. It's amazing how that works. Now, the next thing that happens is interesting. I, I, the scripture kind of skims over it real fast. Suddenly, Paul's back in jail. I, I, get the, I get the feeling that maybe the jailer wasn't supposed to take Paul home with him, right? He wasn't supposed to take homework home with him, you know? And I get the feeling that maybe the jailer wouldn't want anyone to know that Paul came home with him because the next morning, we find Paul back in the jail cell, right? So he's left the house. He's back in the jail cell. The magistrate comes down. I don't know if he works up out with the officers or more than likely, that was just his punishment. More than likely, they beat him, threw him in the cell, and the next morning said, look, Get them out of here. We don't want to sit and feed them. We don't want them crowding our jails. Just tell them to leave. They're visitors anyway. Tell them to come out of our city. Don't ever come back, and we're done. That's all. Right? I mean, subversion is bad, but it, you know, they weren't going to execute the guy over it. Beat him, throw him in jail overnight, and send him home. That pretty much takes care of it. And so they let him out, sort of. But Paul isn't, isn't having it, right? Paul is going to have his day in court. Paul is going to let people know what they did. So the officers come down. They say, you're free to go. Go in peace. And Paul says, hold on. I'm a Roman citizen. And I can imagine their hearts sink, like, oh, we messed up. I'm a Roman citizen, and you didn't give me a trial. I'm uncondemned, as, as the NRSV uses. I have not been given a trial. I've not been convicted of anything, and yet here I am rotting in the cell, beaten. So they run to get the magistrates. The magistrates come down, they console him, they plead with him, they beg, uh, and they apologize to him, and they ask him, they beg him, they plead with him to leave the city and leave them alone because they know that they messed up. Isn't it amazing? Paul's accent didn't change, his skin tone didn't change, his clothes didn't change, his name didn't change, his face didn't change. All that changed was the knowledge of the magistrates about who Paul was. 
It was okay to beat a man, a human being, a person who is divinely loved by God. It's okay to beat him and to throw him into a jail. But when you find out he belongs to the same country you do, suddenly his rights have been violated. Before it was fine, now his rights have been violated. And that was, that was Roman culture at the time. Roman rights, their Bill of Rights, their Constitution, applied only to its citizens, not anyone else. That meant that Jews visiting, as they had assumed Paul was, did not have those rights that a Roman citizen would have. Now, if they knew Paul was a Roman citizen, they would have had to take him to court. He would have had to have a trial. He would have had counsel. He would have had the opportunity to explain himself. He might have even evangelized to the judge. I don't know. <clears throat> Knowing Paul, he probably would have. Instead, they threw him into a cell. Isn't that amazing how that changes? This past week, we celebrated uh, 46 years since the lunar landing. And 46 years since man first walked on the moon. And uh, the, I, I was been, I've been watching all week kind of some of these clips and things of the various things that have happened. I watched a clip of Nixon making the first phone call to the moon. And, and uh, I, I discovered that uh, in reading about it that Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were not informed that this was going to happen. They were asleep. And they got woken up uh, by, you know, Houston saying, hey, Nixon just called and he wants to talk to you. So, they, so Nixon has this beautiful speech prepared to t- say over the phone. It takes like four minutes. And, and they say, yeah, uh, well, this is really nice, you know. And, I mean, they kind of stammer it out, right? They don't know what to do. And it, that, that's funny to me. But anyway, but probably one of the most impactful things that happened about the whole lunar landing wasn't the rocks that they brought back. It wasn't the rover. It wasn't the successful mission. It was a picture. There's two of them, really. One is from the orbiter, uh, taking a picture of Earth as it flies towards the moon. The other is from the surface of the moon, taking a picture of, of Earthrise, right? Of Earth only partially being visible over the surface of the moon, much the same way the moon is sometimes only partially visible from Earth. Both of these pictures had a lot of impact on the world, right? These are perhaps two of the most influential pictures ever. Right? In a photography magazine, they had some of the most influential pictures ever. Uh, one was during the Vietnam War, uh, where a, uh, a white soldier was carrying a, a wounded black soldier, and this was when uh, troops had been integrated for, uh, since the Korean War, but this was kind of still a controversial issue. And what we saw here were two injured men caring for each other, not caring about what their skin color was. Uh, there was an image of, uh, of uh, a recent image of an uh, uh, Afghani girl uh, with a very bright green eyes. You've probably seen it on the front of Time Magazine and others. Uh, and, and her struggle uh, to come out of, of radicalism, uh, radicalism and, and try to find a life. And up there was this picture of Earth. And what a lot of people don't realize is that this gave birth to a movement. Earth Day was created largely because of this image. And environmentalism became a thing, right? People began to wonder if there's a way that we could protect Earth and take care of Earth. Environmentalism exists in many ways because of this picture. Uh, whether you like it or not, this kind of flower power movement, a lot of it came out of this picture. It came out of, wow, we're all in this together. Because there's something amazing about this picture. If you look at a globe, everyone had a globe. We knew what the Earth looked like. This wasn't something, we weren't unexpected. It wasn't expected. But on a globe, you have letters and lines and, and drawings, and you have scales, and you have borders, and you have names of cities and villages, and you have, uh, you have places where there's wars going on, and you have highways, and you have roads. But on this picture of Earth, taken from miles and miles away, taken all the way from the moon, you don't have any of that. In fact, if you didn't know any better, you wouldn't even know that there were such a thing called human, right? From the moon, you can't see any highways, you can't see any wars. You can't see any gunfire. You can't see any people. You can't see any trucks. You can't see anything but earth and water and clouds. And that had an impact on people. It had an impact on people because the borders were invisible. The borders 
were made up. And that became very real when you see a planet without borders. We realize that we're all kind of in this together, on the rock together. Unfortunately, we still haven't figured it out, and peace still eludes us, and, and xenophobia still exists, and, and an inability to, to love one another regardless of what we look like still exists, but hopefully we're making progress. And this picture made an impact, and it made an impact on me when I first saw it as a kid, because I just thought it was so cool. And it begins to we kind of wrap us together to what evangelism really is. Paul's evangelism was important in this way because he evangelized to people who weren't like him. Paul wasn't just evangelizing to people who were his people. Paul was evangelizing to a jailer who beat him and locked him up, who eagerly threw him in a cell and put shackles on his feet just because someone asked him to. Paul evangelized to a woman who was doing something that was the antithesis of what he thought modest lifestyle should be. Paul even evangelized in some way and a woman who mocked him. People who weren't like him at all, people who didn't live inside of his borders. Paul evangelized to and showed extraordinary grace and love to. I believe that's because Paul looked at human beings the way God looks at human beings. And he sees only humans. In fact, I, I believe that that image of, the, of earth from the moon might even be how God looks at earth. You really think God uh, obeys our borders? You think God obeys our understandings of who's us and who's them? You think God cares that we have borders or God cares that we've decided who the good people and the bad people are? I don't think so. I think that God cares who people are. And, and God's idea of a border is who loves him and who has yet to know him. And that our responsibility is to find those who have yet to know him and to tell, him about, to tell them about God's love. Whether they look like us, whether they live where we live, whether they vote like us, they think like us, they make decisions like we make, our job is to show them the extraordinary love of God, to extend unlimited grace to them, and to let them know that there's a God who loves them. That's what evangelism really is. It starts with understanding uh, and breaking away from humanity's probably greatest sin. Humanity's greatest sin, because all other sin seems to stem from it, has got to come from our inability to love one another and our inability to see each other as the same. Instead, to see each other only as different. We do this a lot. I have a good friend who lives in the city. He lives in Central West End, and uh, uh, he's lived kind of there or that area his whole life. And uh, he and I like to tease each other about rural versus urban living, right? And, uh, you know, he, he often says that he doesn't understand how, how I get anything done because there's no light, nightlife out here. And I said, well, there's all kinds of crickets and stars, you know. And, uh, and, I, and I get a chuckle out of him going camping. And, and uh, you know, then I take a picture of my back deck and I say, yeah, I got the same view all the time, you know. <clears throat> Except there's less people around. <laughs> but uh, we tease each other. But, but we recognize that there are differences between each of the ways that each of us have grown up. The difference becomes, of course, when we decide that people who live in certain areas or who live differently than us or who make decisions differently than us aren't worthy of us and aren't worthy of the love that God has for them through us. So, friends, my prayer for us is that uh, maybe we even go home and look at it. You know, go home and look up that picture that, of that earth from the moon and, and we think about how God might view earth. I hope my prayer for us could be that, uh, that we would come to know God in such a way that we would come to know each other the way that God knows us. Think about that for a minute. That we would look at the world the way that God looks at the world. Evangelism can mean a lot of things. Um, I have an acquaintance who told me about, uh, about an experience with, evangel- with an evangelist. And I've been evangelized to several times, and I, I, I'm thankful for that. You, know, you might think it might be annoying, but I, I like it. I'm, I'm thankful that there are people who want me to know about God. I've had the door-to-door people coming to tell me that, that mine's wrong and theirs is right. Um, I've had the fiery preacher at Walmart, you know, in the Walmart parking lot, uh, shoot me down. Had that happen. But uh, my friend's experience probably takes the cake. He was at a bar. Uh, he was eating some hot wings and watching a Cardinal baseball game. So you know he's saved. Um, and, 
And he's in this bar and, uh, with some friends. And, uh, you know, real simple story. If he didn't have cable TV, and it was an important game, so he went to the bar to watch it. And all of a sudden, someone barges in through the door, holding his breath with pamphlets in his hand. He begins tossing these pamphlets out everywhere. And they're pamphlets about sin and hell and condemnation and, and you know, the fiery uh, pit and, the, and a lot of stuff from Dante's Inferno, not the Bible. Um, you know, about all these things that are, that are coming for them. And, and, uh, and they kind of flip through them and throw them away, and this guy runs out. Well, this, this acquaintance of mine is not the kind of person who uh, has, to, he, he has to satisfy his So he runs out after the guy. He says, what are you doing? He says, well, these people are sinners, and they have to know about God. And he, he ignored the question of why you thought they were sinners automatically, but he asked, well, why are you holding your breath? He says, because I don't want to inhale the fumes of alcohol lest I be condemned to hell. Right, this guy was so uh, like, locked on to his theology of alcohol that even breathing the fumes of a sinner uh, would condemn him to hell. And it's unfortunate because it's a legalistic view of God that doesn't fit the scriptures. It's a view of God that says, I'm going to catch you on a technicality. I just want to catch you on a technicality. Instead of a view of God that says, there are things that can hurt you and I want you to avoid those because I love you. And I'm thankful to serve a God who ate with sinners. I'm thankful that Jesus gave us a commandment to treat others who are different than us the same way we would treat our own children. I'm thankful that Jesus ate with a tax collector who broke bones to get the tax revenue and who pocketed one for Caesar, one for me. I'm thankful that Jesus ate with a prostitute who uh, sold herself and, and degraded herself to make money because money was more important to her than herself. I'm thankful that Jesus ate with this very people who would crucify him later, and I'm thankful that Jesus ministered to them even as he was on the cross because I'm thankful that I can be the sinner who Jesus would come to and sit with instead of throw a pamphlet at. But even so... Uh, it, it, it demonstrates what evangelism is for some people. It's us versus them. For this individual, uh, and I pray that, that, that he comes to know God in a better way, but for this individual, it was about him, righteous, and them, sinners, and he was going to run in there and, and fix them all with a piece of paper. Instead of coming in, sitting down, hearing their story, and finding out uh, what it is that they might be struggling with. Because certainly there were sinners in that bar. Certainly there's sinners in here. I hope there are. Because uh, if you're all righteous, I'm in the wrong place. I'm wasting my time. And I'm wasting my time on myself. If there's no sinners over there, there's no one up here. I can guarantee it. But he did, rather than hear their story and find out a way to improve their lives, he just decided to kind of criti- criticize them. I also hope this guy doesn't meet me because Blondie's is like my favorite place for a sandwich in town. So <clears throat> I guess I'm in- inhaling all kinds of things. But uh, <clears throat> this is what evangelism means. It means loving people. Ultimately, it means loving people. God calls us to let other people know about our faith and to know about God. Uh, that's very clear. But God calls us to do this because he loves them and he wants us to love them. There's nothing more loving you can do than to tell someone about your faith and to help them experience God for the first time in their lives. And there's no better way to do that than just to love them and to show them the grace that can only come from God. So friends, my prayer for us uh, this week and in the coming weeks is that we would kind of put away what society tells us are the things that make them them and us us, whether that's a nationality whether that's a skin color or a cultural identity, whether that's the way we vote, whether it's the, the way we think, the way we talk, that we would instead set those things aside and we would instead wonder how God is calling us to minister to them. Evangelism has been gotten wrong in so many ways and gotten right in so many ways. When the first evangelists went to Hawaii, the first thing they did was get wool suits for everybody because they couldn't imagine that these guys could go to church without a wool suit. Right? I mean, this guy's wearing, uh, you know, wearing no shirts and, and, and you know, loose clothing. Well, have you ever been to Hawaii? It's hot. Well, duh, you know, it's hot all the time. It's an island, tropical island. So they actually had issues with heat strokes. People actually died in church because their bodies weren't used to these wool suits in an unair-conditioned church on a tropical island. 
But to them, evangelism meant we have to convert them into us. They had to look like us. But that's not the way it works. If instead they had been like Paul and expressed their faith and got them to know God, they could have worried maybe a little bit less about how they dressed and a little bit more about how they prayed. And that's my prayer for us. That we would kind of break away from the mold of trying to find ways to, to criticize others and ways to create us and them. And instead we would find ways to, to find out how we can let people know about God. And we would start by living our lives in such a way that people want what we've got. Amen.